Right, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to the LSE for this, the uh, closing session of our eighth uh, literary festival under the title Utopias. Um, I, my name is George Gaskell. I'm a special advisor to the director here, and I sit on the committee that uh, pulls together the um, literary festival. So I'd like to thank a few people uh, on behalf of the school. We've had uh, about 35 events over the last 10 days. We've had an exceptional uh, string of wonderful speakers. I'd like to thank them for coming, as you may appreciate, uh, well, you may not appreciate, but the speakers are not paid. Uh, it's very generous of them to give their time. I'd like to thank the audiences, you and uh, many other people who have uh, made this uh, festival worthwhile. Uh, we've had some great questions, and it's been a real pleasure. I'd like to thank the uh, stewards. We have a few here with the red T-shirts. There are students in the school here who look after us and make sure we find our way to the right place. I'd like to thank our catering staff who put on some very pleasant uh, pizzas and various other refreshments. And after this session, you're warmly invited to an end of festival um, uh, glass of wine, and I think there's some music. And I'd also like to uh, thank Louise Gaskell, who uh, is in our communications department and uh, puts together this literary festival, has invented the idea of an LSE literary festival eight years ago, and uh, I hope you'll be uh, signing up for next year, and it's conceivable that the theme for next year will be revolutions. Uh, I forget how many uh, years it is since the uh, glorious revolution, but uh, there have been other revolutions, and I think it's the 100th anniversary. Now, before I introduce uh, my dear colleague, Sandra Joff-Chelovich, who's a professor of social psychology, I'd just like to say a couple of things. Um, there is this drinks reception, and there's also the LSE Photo Prize 2016. We had 250 entries this year from staff, students, and alumni. Uh, the photographs are supposed to attach to the theme Utopias, and I think there will be uh, a prize uh, awarded. Uh, on the general point of housekeeping, if you have a mobile phone, can you switch it on to quiet mode? And if you have a mobile phone and you are a tweet enthusiast, we have the hashtag there, LSE Lit Fest. So, and uh, finally... Uh, we are, this is being recorded, and uh, barring any uh, technical problems, there will be a podcast of this event. So, without further ado, let me introduce my dear colleague, Sandra Jovchelovich, who is going to introduce this session and our speakers. So, thank you very much, Sandra. Thank you, George. Uh... Good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome to you and to our panel. I'm really thrilled to have Ned Bowman, uh, Kate Devlin, and Nick Humphreys with us this evening to address the problem of uh, consciousness and embodiment. Ned Bowman is an acclaimed author and 
has written many books, uh, which include uh, The Teleportation Accident and Glow. He has won many awards, including the Writers Guild Award for Best Fiction Book, and you'll find his books after the event outside. He is happy to sign, as I understand. Kate Devlin is a senior uh, lecturer in the Department of Computing at uh, Goldsmiths, University of London, and her research focuses on perception and cognition in the fields of human-computer interaction and artificial intelligence. Kate is currently investigating how people interact with and react to technology, and she is working on issues of cognition, sex, gender, and sexuality, looking at how this might be incorporated into cognitive systems. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say to us this evening. Professor Nicholas Humphrey is a colleague here at LSE. He's an emeritus professor of psychology uh, at the school. He's also a visiting professor of philosophy at New College of the Humanities and senior member of Darwin College, Cambridge. His books include Consciousness Regained, The Inner Eye, A History of the Mind, Leaps of Fate, and his most recently, So Dust, The The Magic of Consciousness, is uh, also outside, and I think Nick will be happy to sign uh, copies later. He has been the recipient of several honors, uh, including the Martin Luther King Memorial Prize, and more recently, the International Mind and Brain Prize. Now, why this panel, and what moved us to propose this discussion? So let me introduce uh, the topic briefly. Inspiring this proposal uh, is William William Gibson's book, New Romancer, a book that was first published in 1984 and which I reread in 2015. When I first read New Romancer, I was quite young and I I was not a psychologist. So in rereading it this time, uh, I loved it over again. It's brilliant in a thousand ways. But this time, as I was thinking about the world of Case and Molly Millions, uh, many of you who have read this book will know that, uh, I was awakened by the idea that all our human utopias vis-a-vis consciousness travel contra, travel against the direction of most psychology and cognitive science. Psychologists claim, or know, that cognition is embodied and social. In the age of neuroscience, fMRI scanners seem to be the best way to understand consciousness. The body, or even more narrowly, the brain, is not seen as the seat of consciousness. For many, it is consciousness. The world we know, knowledge, perception of the world, is dependent on the embodiment of mind. And if you are a social and cultural psychologist, as I am, you will conceive the subject of cognition as contained in a biological system and grounded in a sociocultural world. The evidence so far seems to be clear. The cognitive is biological and social. 
bodies and other humans are needed, are required for transforming a baby into a person. And that's perhaps uh, why the horror of dualism cuts so deep into us. And yet, just as in neuromancer, and a kind of healthy contempt for the flesh, the idea that the body is the prison of the soul, are assumptions very deeply ingrained into our everyday psychology. Who would want to say that they are only and just their bodies? I know I wouldn't. For my generation of women, freedom from the body was a political necessity. We believed in Simone de Beauvoir when she said that biology was not destiny. We held a distant, reflexive relationship to our bodies. And as I grew into becoming a psychologist, I started to see that this is true for everyone. And most clearly, in pain and in illness, when we want ourselves away from the body, out of it. We hate and we love and we forgive our bodies, and then we discover that we are part, that the body is part of us. It is part of us. But it is not us. It is as if our total being comprised two separate entities, an eye that is located in consciousness and a body that is out of it. And I'm not even going to mention religion, this strange form of cognition that separates body and soul, a cultural and social psychological universal that presents in all human societies and epochs. So New Romancer took up this common sense and made it into a whole new world, into a whole new vision of the world. The book gave us the first ever vision of the web and baptized cyberspace. It gave us minds uploaded in different substrates, artificial intelligences that could surpass human intelligence, and of course, in the book we already see for the first time, a rogue IA, Wintermoot, full immersion in a virtual world of jacking into cyberspace. The book gave us a feeling and a, see, a way of seeing the world that could jack into another person's mind. And it let us enhance ourselves with Microsoft. Nothing to do with the company. Gibson invented the word Microsoft well before Microsoft invented computers. And of course, the book also gave us Chiba, a kind of playground for uncontrolled technological imaginations. And the list goes on. If we fast forward this list to the second decade of the 21st century, the promise of artificial intelligence is very real. Robotics, the talk and the fear of the town, the tech industry, the new wonderland for kids who just last week wanted to work and make money in banks. New Romancer is here and it is real. So how do we make sense of all this? Minds do not exist separated from biological and social systems, but are human utopias, from the religious to the political to the scientific, back to the disagree, dreaming and driving the search for a disembodied, free-floating consciousness. So I'm inviting our panel tonight to address this paradox, 
as we ask, can consciousness exist independently of our two human biological and social selves? And will machines ever possess it? Or perhaps we should think about all this in entirely new ways? Sure, yeah. Thanks for coming, everybody. Um, so the, the first thing I think we ought to do is um, make a distinction between two ways that, at least in science fiction, we can be free of the body. Um, and one of them is, as William Gibson calls it, jacking in, and the other one is uploading. And they're both quite in vogue in science fiction, but they're, they're actually very different. So... Uh, jacking in is what happens in Neuromancer and Gibson's later novels, which is basically virtual reality. So you plug yourself into cyberspace, as it was then known. Um, and it's really not that different from just playing a computer game. And in fact, Gibson was... He got the idea from it when he saw kids in video arcades uh, in Vancouver who he said was sort of so engaged with what they were playing that it was as if they wanted to climb into the arcade machine. Um, when you're jacked in, obviously depending on the science fictional accounts of it, but there's maybe a plug in the back of your neck or electrodes on your temples or whatever, but you're basically still there in your body. The thinking is still happening there in your brain. It's a lot like playing a computer game, whereas... Uploading, which is sometimes confused with, but it's not the same, is the idea that your brain could be copied onto a computer and live on in the cloud. So your body would be completely discarded um, and you would just exist digitally. Um, and one reason why they're quite different is because I imagine jacking in will be possible in the next 15 or 20 years, whereas it's still up for debate where, where, whether it would even be possible to copy a whole human brain onto a computer and have it um, function the same way. And then, of course, there's the question of artificial intelligence, which, uh, again, is another problem entirely. Jacking in, for me, actually doesn't present that many really testing philosophical questions because, as I said, I think it's just like playing a computer game. Um, this idea that cognition is inherently physical and inherently social, well, one way to dispute that is to look at the kids in the arcades who are um, playing. They're more identified with their character in the game at that time than they are identified with themselves and their bodies. And also, they're not interacting with any other human beings. They're not being social. So at least that proves for short periods you, ha you can be neither social nor biological. But I realize that the proponents of um, embodied and social cognition are talking about something a bit more profound than that. But even then, it seems to me the idea that um, all cognition is social cognition... What about a lighthouse keeper who sees nobody for a year or for five years? And then you might say, there's this question of, okay, to turn a baby into an adult, at least you need social cognition, but then you can send the adult off and he or she cannot be social for a while after that. 
But of course, there have been children raised by wolves in the forest. That's a real thing that happened a few times in the 19th century. And those kids, uh, when they were eventually discovered, one could say they weren't quite people, but they were still capable of a kind of cognition, and they had survived in the woods. Um, And similarly, yes, in a sense, all cognition that we know of is embodied, but at the same time, there are people who are paralyzed from the neck down. There are people who are in comas, locked in, so they can't even blink their eyelids, but they're still thinking. There are moments, perhaps under anesthesia, when all the signals you're getting from the body and all of the signals you're sending fade away, and yet... um, you're still capable of cognition in that moment. Um, So for me, uh, to say that cognition is embodied and is social, it's just, yes, most of the time that's quite important to it. But the idea that you couldn't take it away, for me, is as sort of short-sighted as the idea, you know, um, in the 19th century, or at least perhaps apocryphally, people thought that you could never go on a train over 45 miles an hour because it would shake your bones apart and there would be nothing left of you but powder. The whole, this whole conversation is premised on quite a science fictional idea that we might be able to jack into virtual reality. So it, to me, it seems perverse to have this very kind of extravagant imagination that all these new technologies might be possible, even uploading or artificial intelligence and yet niggle over what to me seems a very small and contingent question of, well, most of the time when we're thinking it would disconcert us if we couldn't feel our heartbeat or if we couldn't imagine what our parents might think about what we were doing or all of these other things about the social and physical context. I think uh, as these things advance in the... um, 21st century, that is in the long run going to seem as uh, kind of intellectually constrained as the train shaking your bone to dust. Um, And you might say, well, imagine bringing up a baby not only raised by wolves, but also paralyzed from the neck down. What kind of cognition could that eventual person possibly be doing? And that probably is true that that eventual person wouldn't strike us as very much like what we think of as a person in a lot of ways. But of course, the truth is that no one is at that stage proposing that, neither with jacking in nor with uploading. And if you said to me now, okay, you can never see anybody again, you have to live in a lighthouse, and you also have to be paralyzed from the neck down and you can't even feel your heart beating or your eyes blinking or whatever but you can be jacked into this presumably limitless cyberspace where there you can interact with anyone in the world there presumably the electrodes will give you in this scenario some kind of illusion of your limbs having weight and your blood pumping and your skin prickling when the temperature goes down or whatever. In a sense, I might take that deal. I don't see why um, 
we should need to be so wedded to the old literal version of the social context and the bodily context when it will only take a few technological leaps to give us um, an illusion of the context which for the purposes of our brains carrying on um, might be just as good. it's a different question whether I would be copied into a computer. If some of you said to me, you'll be copied into a computer um, and then your physical body will be erased, but in the computer, your data file, as it were, will be run um, within a simulation of a physical landscape and you'll be surrounded by other data files who seem to you to be just like other people. I can understand not wanting to take that deal because for a lot of people there may be some, as it were, secret ingredient that we have in our wet physical brains that this computer version would not have. Personally, again, I would take that deal because for me uh, the copy of me in the clouds, my point of view on consciousness is that that is going to be just as conscious and just as real as the version of me in my brain. So I would take it. Um, And yes, we've evolved with um, embodied cognition and social cognition, and we've grown up from babies with embodied cognition and social cognition. Uh, But the idea that we couldn't cope without it um, is, to me, sufficiently short-sighted that if any of these technologies existed, I would be the first person to try them out. (laughs) Thanks. Um, Okay, so consciousness is really a a catch-all phrase, so we don't actually really know what consciousness is. So that's the end of the debate. Um, so we, consciousness, we can see it as a black box in that we don't know what's going on in our brains, in our minds, um, but we can observe the reactions, and that's how we know if someone, if, if a human has some form of consciousness. And um, like Ned says, you could have someone who is comatose. Are they conscious? You know, is there, a, is there some cutoff point where we don't think they're capable of, of consciousness anymore? Um, and it's very hard to define because there are different approaches. So there is, there are, there's the kind of the objective approach to consciousness, where you have these um, neural correlates. So you have these um, responses to stimulus that tell us that something is alive and responding to its environment. Um, and then you have the philosophical approach to, com- to um, consciousness, which is all about the inner private experience of being aware of oneself and this idea of qualia, where you have got this individual experience. And if you think of like, how do we know that other people are experiencing the same thing as us? <coughs> colour is a really good example. So objectively, we can measure colour as a wavelength. Um, that's something we can do physically. But how do we know that I'm seeing the same colour that each of you are saying and for example this particularly garish um, frozen pen that I stole from my daughter's pencil case on the way here um, it's a wonderful pink to me but how do I know that you're all seeing it in similar, in similar ways um, and colour is a very complicated thing because we don't really know how it's processed it's very possibly got a big linguistic um, appro- um, aspect to it where we name things in a certain way and that's how we understand what they are. But we've got this inner private experience of the world 
Um, and we've got this something going on in our brain that we can measure as well. We've got some kind of stimulus happening in our brain. And it's very hard to know where the, this idea of consciousness, what does it mean as a whole? Um, non-human consciousness, certainly in terms of animals, there's scientific um, evidence to say, suggest that animals have a form of consciousness too. Um, so it still exists. It can exist outside of humans, but it's still embodied. It's still... <laughs> Um, as far as we know, it's still within uh, a thing where an animal that has a body and is aware of it. So what happens about the machines? Will the machines ever possess consciousness? Um, if you think of a sort of a checklist for consciousness, what kind of things need to go on for, for something to, to be conscious? You could think like um, the ability to remember things. And machines can do that. Okay, that's, that's something they can do. The ability to learn things. Well, we already have that. We have machine learning. We have neural networks. We can simulate that kind of thing. We can, we can create machines that can learn from what they have done from experience. Um, the ability to anticipate things. And again, this is something that's tied in with the learning. But the subjective experience thing is much harder to... Um, that's where things fall down a bit. Um, so is, can a machine be self-aware? And actually, last year... There was a really lovely little um, video released um, of uh, Rensselaer University in the States uh, showed a robot with some self-awareness. And what happens was they had these three little now robots and they told the robots, they told the robots that um, two of them had been given, given a dumbing pill and the, the third hadn't. And they wanted to know which, they basically programmed this in, they wanted to know which robot um, would be, if it would be aware that it hadn't been given this hypothetical dumbing pill. So they told the robots, one of you have, has had this dumbing pill. And um, two of the robots stayed silent. And they said to the, they, so they said, and then the third robot stood up and said, I don't know. And then went, wait a minute, I can move, therefore I have not had the dumbing pill. It was really, it was quite a sweet but short little moment. And it was described as robot self-awareness. Um, it's pushing it a little, but... It's a robot responding to a logical um, event. It, has, it is some kind of self-awareness that has started. It's not the sentience we might be worried about in terms of Robocop or Terminator or anything like that. Um, but it's a, st it's a step along the way. Um, so in principle, we, we could look at machines having consciousness, but it's going to be something very simple to start with. And it may not look like human consciousness at all. But think of how long it has taken the human brain to evolve over millennia, over, you know, such a, an amazingly long time. Uh, I think what that could mean, computers can work a lot faster than that and catch up a lot faster than that. We could have consciousness in a machine in the future. And if we did, what happens when it comes to interacting with these machines? So what happens to ethics and rights, the rights of the machine? How do you define a legal position on consciousness? If you create a machine that is self-aware, first you've got to define what consciousness is, which is problematic. Um, consciousness is not yet an issue in machines, but there are issues around that because we already have machines that can make autonomous decisions, and those include autonomous kill decisions on the battlefield, sending in drones that can make a decision on whether or not to attack. So there is already some things to think about in how much autonomy do we give machines and at what point does self-awareness kick in and will that change what happens? <coughs> okay, thanks. Um, I, 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 I rather wish I was disembodied. I've had a terrible 
had cold for the last few days. Um, and it was interesting, Sandra's opening remarks about, you know, there are times when we'd actually quite like to leave this flesh behind. Um, I was, I got a letter, a very moving letter, 20 years ago, I guess now, from a young man in America who's called Joe King, who wrote to me saying that he'd suffered from brittle bone disease. He was this high, and he had 43 fractures. Um, and he wrote to me saying that, did I think that uh, there was life after death, that his consciousness would survive after death, and was there a possibility he'd have a different body in, next time around? Um, so, uh, yes, bodies, bodies certainly matter to us. Um, I thought also of Stephen Hawking, as he made that remark about, about an embodiedness of, of consciousness. Um, Interestingly enough, although some people think of Stephen as being kind of meek on a you know, pure brain, of course, his, I knew him very well. He lived with my family when he was a boy. Um, he, uh, he, after he became ill, his body, uh, his embodiedness came to be central to the way in which he did his thinking and his research. He could no longer write. Um, his body had failed him in that way. Stephen then had to start using geometric, topological proofs for his, his ideas about black holes and so on because he couldn't do it in the standard way and because he was forced by his frail, in, in, in bad, badly working body to think in a different way, he came up with, with some astonishing new insights. So bodies and minds go on interacting whatever level you take it. Now, um, I, Sandra's asked, asked the first, she says in her introduction that, okay, we, we believe that Cognition is, at least in humans, uh, always embodied and, and also always dependent up to a point on the social world in which we, we've been brought up. I think it's important to say, though, that that's only in humans. I think most artificial people who work on artificial intelligence believe it makes sense to talk about thinking machines and cognition in uh, instantiated in computers and so on, um, the kind of computer which can beat the world chess champion, um, uh, Deep Blue, for example, or the kind of computer which controls the, the, you know, the London Transport Network or whatever it is. They are thinking machines, expert systems, doing very good job, very good work. For that kind of level of, 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 of actually expressing and, and, and using intelligence, you certainly don't need to have a body like ours, and you don't really need to be socially embedded either. I think it would be quite reasonable to talk about thinking machines as developing without either of those two constraints. Now, in our case, um, Sandra's quite right. It's very hard to imagine the human, human styles of thought which don't involve it. We know that we use bodily metaphors all the time, for example, even in, if we're thinking abstractly. Um, we, as, as the philosopher Andy Clark has said, we're actually made to be much better at frisbee than we are at logic. Um, our, we, our, our, whole, our brains are designed to be amazingly intelligent in the way which we use our bodies to interact in the world. And as other people have shown, it's, um, we're much better at so solving social problems than we are at logic frame the same problem in social terms, everybody gets the answer, put it in abstract terms, and they, they can't get there anymore. So for humans, yes, we, are, we depend for our cleverness uh, on all these, uh, on, the, on the, the fact we've evolved and, for that matter, uh, grown up within, in bodies and within society. We've learned a lot of very useful heuristics. AI people might want to borrow some of those, but I don't th- see why they would need to. Now, that's thinking, that's cognition. Let's come back to um, consciousness. Uh, I think Kate's being much too humble in a way. She says that she, we don't know what it is. <laughs> of course we know what it is. Um, um, we may not know how to talk about it particularly well, but uh, the reason why we get into conversations like this is it's because we know and value 
our own consciousness, and that's the starting point for philosophical discussions and discussions in the playground about whether I'm seeing red the way you're, you're seeing red, and so on. Now, there's been a lot of different ways of defining consciousness. I tend to use, to begin with, the simple one of it's what's available, it's when conscious states are those which are available to us through introspection. We can have a sort of inner eye and we can observe our own thinking and emotions and, and feelings and willing and so on. Um, now, the interesting thing about that is that it looks as though that, that introspective consciousness originally developed in human beings in a social context. The reason we need to know what it's like to be us when we're uh, engaging with the world is because we can then use ourselves as a model for what it's like to be other people. So introspective consciousness turns out to be an amazingly good tool for developing what's called a theory of mind. Um, And I think a lot of psychologists and certain evolutionary psychologists now see that as the origin in human, well not just before humans, some monkeys, apes no monkeys don't have it, Uh, chimpanzees gorillas show uh, elements of it, but in humans it really took off we got to have a picture of what it was like to be us uh, and therefore we had a a model of the mind which we could apply to understanding what other people would do in similar circumstances and so on that's introspection now uh, Kate also said well of course then there's the problem of qualia uh, and sentience and feelings and you know the redness of red and the saltiness of salt and all that stuff, um, which of course is absolutely central to why we value consciousness. I mean, uh, uh, sort of bleached out introspective evidence for how our minds work wouldn't be so wonderful if it wasn't that what we discover about our minds is that they are the centres of this glorious technicolor qualia universe in which um, which. It seems to, you know, in a, my book's called The Magic of Consciousness. It is a magical world we live in. And then we actually spread the magic around us because we not only attribute the same sorts of feelings to other people, but actually we also project it out into the world. So that as well as having the experience of red, I see these chairs as being somehow uh, singing my song and, and, um, and expressing their own redness through my interaction with them. Now that's, I've, that book of mine is largely about what this level of awareness, awareness of the phenomenology of consciousness, what it does for our own self-esteem, how it sets us up to think of ourselves uh, as uh, beyond matter, outside of physical space and so on. Because these qualia can't in any easy way be be, be, uh, translated into or explained in any physical terms. There's a very hard problem there, but we are the the origins of this hard problem. Consciousness Sensory consciousness is inexplicable. It's an enigma, but it's our enigma. And that's something which, from early on in our lives, we begin to value and then value other people because they have it and then value society because of the way it's, it, uh, it, it, the, the, the ideas of soul and self and so on, which build on that, get spread around. Now, that's what I think is the... You know, that's the when we ask if machines could be conscious, well, let's ask it first. Could they have an introspective eye? in order to understand what it was like to be themselves, in order to understand other machines, or other humans for that matter. Well, of course they could. Um, no reason we could build that software quite easily. We haven't had to yet. Kate works all these things about sex toys and sex robots. Well, that's maybe an area of artificial intelligence, which would be quite a good idea for the robot to have some idea of what it's like to be, to be someone else and so on. And, of course, in a lot of other areas, we're all already beginning to think how we can incorporate uh, introspective understanding of the world and, and of the people and of the things in it into a machine 
a self-driving car has to understand what it's like to be another car or another driver and so on. That's coming. Um, whether we'll ever put sentence into the qualia, the, this, uh, this magical uh, uh, world of, 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 of consciousness which is so much harder to explain into machines, well, of course we must be able to. I mean, we're machines. Anything which we can do in principle, uh, a machine could do. There's nothing, there's nothing you know, mysterious or immaterial about the bodies we inhabit. We can mimic those. We can produce a carbon copy, which, of course, would have all the mental qualities that we do. But would we ever want to do it? I mean, Kate says artificial intelligence will go on evolving. Well, what's driving the evolution? Um, who's going to select for consciousness in machines? Um, it was selected in, for, in our case because it's changed our world and our lives in very positive, life-affirming ways, which feeds through to reproductive success. When and, if, when and why would we want to, 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 to send machines that way? Um, well, I've thought quite a lot about that. and uh, I think there's one circumstance which we really might do. I said that, that, that consciousness makes us think about ourselves in a new and wonderful way. It raises our own sense of our metaphysical importance. When might we want machines to have a sense of their metaphysical importance? Well, in the next hundred years or so, we're going to be sending machines out in our place to explore the universe. Um, humans don't have the time or the, or, the, or the bodies which would allow them to go on the kind of journeys which we will, uh, which will use machines to, 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 to go on on our behalf. They're going to have to be very clever, those machines. If they're that clever, they're going to start wondering, what, are we, what am I doing here? Who sent me? What's this all about? Why should I care? Um, and at that point, it might actually make a lot of sense to give the machine some kind of sense that, of meaning in its life, um, that it matters, that the work it's doing matters, that the universe it's living in matters. And one of the most effective ways to do that would be to mimic nature and imbue it with, uh, with, with phenomenal consciousness. At least that's what I've suggested. So, uh, uh, but it's not going to happen unless we try to do it. Thanks, Nick. Okay, we're going to have um, a second round where I'm going to ask Nick, Kate, and um, Nat to react to each other's intervention before we open to the floor. So, um, does anyone want to comment? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, some of the things that Nick had said. I want to. I want to talk about sex robots for a second, um, or self-driving cars. But come on. Um, so, the, they're both. They're both interesting. Honestly, um, the thing about the so the self-driving cars. Um, are we going to have a conscious car? Well, we've got to. We want these. Self, we want these self-driving cars to be incredibly safe on the roads. They're coming. They're they're in development. They will be here. They'll merge into um, into the cars that we drive. You know, merge, not crash. Um, you know, so we'll be will be uh, used in a while to seeing these on the roads eventually. Um, in order for them to function, they're going to need a, a lot of information, and they're going to have to process it very quickly, and they're going to have to make decisions. Um, they're going to have to make decisions. Perhaps if something goes wrong, they're going to have to weigh up the options of what to do. You know, do you crash into that group of school children over there or do you crash into that group of old people over there? This is terrible. 
um, thing to have to work work out. But there's, there's got to be some kind of um, of level of understanding of what of the social context there. So there has to be some form potentially of awareness going on. But also, I th- and, but that they so there could be a level of consciousness, but it doesn't have to be. Um, consciousness that control that where one can control itself a machine could be perhaps aware and yet under our control um so we're saying consciousness and the ability to act on that but not necessarily independent from humans so this is just, this is just some thoughts on it um in, in terms of the sex robots so the sex robots are here um they're kind of mechanized sex dolls they're not particularly wonderful um and they're very much a, um they tend to be predominantly dolls of women that tend to be used by men um and there's room for improvement there i think um (laughs) uh my parents are so proud of my research um so so i think there's um but one of the things i know it sounds like a very frivolous topic to to work on in a way some of it is but um one of the things that we've looked at is um using robots, particularly care robots are here already and helping out in hospitals and nursing homes. Sex robots can be used therapeutically and there are a couple of options for this. There is the option where if you have a sex robot that you want to um, enjoy having sex with, it would be really good to have one that is conscious and is aware of itself and what it's doing and is aware of how to please you. Um, And we can mimic that but we want to build in a level of understanding where it responds. So at what point is consciousness important there? And the other aspect, for the therapeutic aspect, so you could have that perhaps for someone who, um, for some reason, isn't able to have sex in a regular manner. Perhaps they have a disability, and you can provide some kind of therapeutic thing. The other one is that um, there are a lot of issues around things like, um, what if you made a child robot? as a sex robot, okay? It's it, this horrible things like that that you want to take into consideration because the reflex is to kind of go, oh, no, that's, that's really... Ugh. But VR, virtual reality, has been used as therapy for sex offenders to try and set up a safe environment where they can explore um, what is going on in their minds, talk to professionals about this. Um, and again, but what happens if you give one of those machines consciousness? They're going to need awareness as well. Um, so I think... Our consciousness that we experience as humans doesn't necessarily have to be mirrored in a machine, sort of, I think, what's along the lines of what Nick is saying, that we experience a very, very particular form of consciousness for humans that is very embodied and that is very self-aware and introspective. But do we have to stick to that same thing? We, we, is there any point in us trying to replicate the human brain in machine form? I'm not mm. sure there is. I think that we can look at new ways of doing things and there may be new forms of consciousness that's possible with machines. Okay, just on the question of, of, of sex, I, I, one thing we neither, none of us have brought up is, is what uh, Sandra said at the beginning, that most of our utopias are disembodied. As I think of utopias, uh, I, I think of also, you know, the vision of the hundred virgins up in, 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 the, in the Muslim heaven, for example, um, uh, the vision of heaven and hell in, in paintings by Bosch and so on, um, the visions which, which come through even in, through inter, interacting with psychics and, and others, they're intensely embodied. In fact, people go to these worlds in a sense to have different and better bodies and more, and more, more I mean, sublime ones. And I, I know that you know, Plato has this idea of the kind of shades up there just endlessly interacting as pure forms and things without bodies, but that's not the kind of place where anybody either wants to go in an afterlife or that most, most uh, science fiction writers in right, Ned, have actually imagined that 
science, the world of science fiction is people, is, people, is, is full of, of both of entities which have all the, are emotional, um, are embodied, and very, very highly social. Yes, but if I can just add, I mean, there is a tension there, and that's what I find quite intriguing. And the tension is that, on the one hand, we want out of the body, and on the other hand, we can't because we are in it. And that's from the, from the experiential point of view. Uh, and that, for me, what is intriguing is to ask what is the origin of this common sense? Where is this coming from? Because there is no human subject that is not going to experience that tension. So what is this tension doing? It connects us and disconnects Sorry? We really want to be out of the body rather than in a different body. I would, I would hate to be disembodied. I, mean, I, don't, think I've, I don't think I've experienced this, this, this goal. Which but is, we dream uh, of disembodiment. Well, we do. Yeah, we do. Well, we do because if we didn't, we wouldn't be building uh, all kinds of artifacts that could upload us, that could contain us out of our bodies, that could have us just as a soul or as a consciousness or as a replica of our minds. There is a dream there. I'm not sure if I have it or if you have it, but that dream is out there and it belongs to our imagination. I think, though, even with that, the idea that we can upload ourselves to some form of cyberspace mm-hmm. and virtual reality, <laughs> we see this even in virtual reality, that people are trying to mimic the effect of physical contact mm-hmm. in that, in that they want haptic feedback, they want people to fail. There's an entire branch of virtual reality called teledildonics that is entirely to do with having sex over VR. Um, people are still wanting physical experience, even when they've got their head is elsewhere, their mind is elsewhere. So I think it is a really compelling thing to have a, an embodied experience. Well, Ned, Ned said the same, in fact. He's saying that actually any of these uh, things he might be jacked into or, or uploaded into would have to actually have a, a virtual body for, uh, in order to produce these states of mind which, in fact, you'd want to, uh, want, want to be experiencing. Well, though even that might only be a temporary limitation. So if someone said to you, are they going to have tea in heaven? Because if I can't have a cup of tea in heaven, then I don't want to go. You'd, you'd, you'd see that as very short-sighted. But actually, to me, if someone was said, oh, if I can't have sex after I've been uploaded, then I don't want to be uploaded. To me, that's just the same. Like, as it is, we can't think of anything better than sex because that's the best thing that's available to us in our physical bodies. But... After we've been uploaded, if that's ever possible, after perhaps our minds become editable, then we will be able to invent something that is a thousand times better, that will make any of these embodied pleasures seem very banal and grey and kind of just one slice of the frequency. And who knows, that even might be possible with electrodes in the brain. You might even... Uh, not need to upload people to do that. And I actually think, I feel the same way about um, the idea that eventually if we're sending um, a probe into space, for instance, then we would need to give that probe a sort of sense of itself and meaning and the nobility of its task. But again, to me, that's the sort of earthbound, pre-21st century way of looking at things. For human beings, it's very much the case that to do your job, 
effectively you need a sense of the value of what you're doing and certainly for the kinds of human beings who go to talk about consciousness at festivals it's very much the case that you need a sense of wider meaning in order to do your job effectively but we're starting from a blank canvas if we're making these artificial intelligences and if we begin to see our embodied cognition and our social cognition as things that are temporarily wonderful but also things that we're stuck with but I don't think the uploaded consciousnesses need be stuck with them and I also think our eventual artificial intelligences needn't be stuck with them so I can imagine one day there'll be an artificial intelligence who might seem to us extremely kind of grim and joyless in the sense that it doesn't care about the nobility of its duty and it doesn't care about any meaning in the universe because we haven't programmed those those things in and yet it could still do its job a hundred times better and more efficiently and perhaps even with kind of new forms of profundity and new forms of value that we haven't even come up with yet all of that far more than you said it'll do its job what would that be well either something that we've given it or maybe it will think of a purpose for itself but again to think of a to think of a purpose for itself to me that doesn't necessarily entail that it will have what we think of as a kind of meaning or what we think of as a kind of um consciousness even we're just one type of consciousness on this planet all of these notions to me are so contingent and even perhaps Western and even perhaps 21st century. There's a whole universe of possible artificial intelligences. So for me, I say discard everything we, everything we think of as necessary and our sort of digital children can have... We're just such a tiny slice of, as it were, the kind of ontological possibilities are the things that come next might have the whole circle. Well, Martin Rees certainly argues that, that we are just a way station on the road to post-human intelligences, and it's absolutely inevitable that, that uh, after humans, and when we're all extinct, there will be intelligent agents or, or, or in, in, in networks out existing in the universe, which will, as you say, have these... We have a totally different set of values... What we need is a novelist to tell us what those values would be. Um, I mean, you, you, haven't, you, you don't go there yet. Um, I don't. Well, we were talking about this backstage, and I'd, like, I'd really like to recommend to everyone Peter Watts, who's a Canadian science fiction author, and Greg Egan, who's an Australian science fiction author. They do an incredible job with these sorts of issues, far better than I could do. Well, I think it's time for us perhaps to open to the floor and invite questions. There are going to be some mics. Any? I can see there is, there is someone there and then there is a question there as well. And here and there, yes. It was said a robot car would need to decide what to do if it was out of control, which side of the road to veer onto and the consequences. And you said you'd have to give it uh, uh, Dr. Devlin said you would have to give it consciousness in order to make that decision. Well, I, I think you said that. I was just going to say I don't see 
A, how you could do it and why you would need to do it, you'd, you'd still be working on ordinary AI program type decisions about number of people, etc., etc. Yeah, um, yeah, it wouldn't have to have consciousness to make that decision, but I think to be able to extend this idea of embodied, um, embodied cognition and consciousness depending on a social basis, it would be very useful for a driverless car to have social awareness and social knowledge and all the kinds of judgments that we make very, very quickly to be able to respond in that way rather than just kind of, you know, if they're small, don't hit them, if they're old, you know. This way. I think to, have, to be able to have that social context would be really, really important. But I think what's interesting, whether the best way of giving that would be to make it self-aware. In other words, it can learn from its own experiences yeah. and what it's like to be itself, what, what, yeah. to what it would be like to be another car. I mean, it's an open question. I mean, AI people might decide that's actually a good idea to go that oh. way. There was a question there first. The woman at the top, no, that was the first. And then I'll take one from the middle. Um, we've talked about, um, I guess, freeing consciousness through technology, which I guess is quite all the rage right now. Um, but I was curious as to your thoughts of how we attempt to free consciousness or ourselves through our sense of consciousness through other means. I mean, particularly in the present day, there's a lot of leaning towards meditation or the use of chemical substances to try and escape the consciousness that we have now. And it's quite popular and, and almost like frequently used. So yeah, I was just, I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts on that apart from just technology. No, I, I think this is a very interesting question. I frequently think, you know, it would be a really interesting test to give a machine LSD or to get it to smoke a joint and just to see what would, you know, but I'll, perhaps you want to say something? I mean, from, from my point of view, for instance, even if you were one of the handful of people in history who've achieved full enlightenment, you haven't actually freed your consciousness. You're still just as trapped in your brain and in your body. To me, it's much more a question of what you've achieved is you don't care anymore that you're trapped. Presumably, someone who is enlightened in that way, whose self had fully dissolved would no longer feel weighted down by their body, would be perfectly equable by the, about the thought of living and dying as they are. So, I d yeah, if the deal is enlightenment or uploading, I don't know which of those I'd take. Maybe, I think I'd still take uploading, though. <laughs> of course, that kind of enlightenment would be a total disaster, biologically. If any of us had evolved to go that way, we wouldn't, be having, we wouldn't leave any descendants behind. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Lots of you want to say something. Let me try to... There was a question here to start, and then I'll take two from the middle, and then I'll go sideways. Yeah. Thank you very much for your uh, insights. I have two quick questions. Um, one is you said you would uh, upload your brain if it's possible. I was wondering about the continu continuation, like if you are one being, and then you kill yourself and you're uploaded, would you see it as a continuation of yourself? Or is it just you dying and then you being existing? Like, how do you deal with this problem? And the second problem is uh, towards, or the second question towards um, everybody is uh, many people talk about a term called intelligence explosion. And they say if we uh, remove the limitations of our physical brain and recreate some kind of um, artificial brain, some kind of um, consciousness on a technical environment, it would self-improve it 
itself immediately, very, very quickly, and humans would be left behind. Yet you talked about um, a coexistence between these uh, uploaded consciousness and humans, or at least I, I perceived it like this. How do you deal with this term of intelligence explosion? Well, it's a question about, you know, say it would improve itself. I mean, if you assume there's, there's some drive behind intelligence simply to, to, to get more and more intelligence and more and more enlightened and more and more conscious, maybe. I mean, it's an interesting question whether we would expect that to happen. There's some question of, well, instantiating uh, a, a, a superintelligence. Do you know about, about Boltzmann brains? I'm sure Ned does. Um, this is the idea which is discussed very seriously by physicists, that out of nothing... A perturbation in the nothingness of the, of, the, of the empty void of space could, and in the end almost certainly will, create something which is an absolute simulacrum of a human brain. Um, it's bound to happen, if, if given, because if the universe is large enough, then nothingness will create something which actually would be sentient and intelligent and embodied and everything, just as we are. Um, uh, it's a, it's a native, I mean, you must know these speculations. And well, actually, Greg Egan writes a lot about that. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I, I mean, want to say something um, about it. In other words, you don't have to upload us. It could just happen spontaneously. <laughs> well, also, there's the interesting question, which is in Greg Egan, of um, imagine that uh, at any moment you have a brain state and then you're annihilated for some reason. But somewhere else in the universe, a gas cloud happens to have arranged itself into such a configuration uh, th that is structurally just the same as the brain state that would have come right after your last brain state uh, if you hadn't been annihilated. Would it be fair to say that you'd lived for that microsecond longer? And actually, this, of course, relates to the question of would I be uploaded... The question is always like, well, if my body were destroyed and if I were put into a computer, would that be the same as me? Um, but I actually agree with uh, the philosopher Derek Parfit, who ends up concluding that identity is not actually like a yes or no thing. It's much fuzzier than that. You could even say that if you're knocked out and then wake up, you're only 99.99% the same person as you were before you were knocked out because... Um, because something's changed and there was a sort of break. So it's, for me, it's a spectrum. Are you the same person when you wake up? Yes. If your body was teleported to another planet, would that body be the same as the one that was destroyed on the original planet? Yeah, nearly entirely, so it's fine. If you're uploaded, would that digital brain be the same person as you back on Earth? It's not necessarily a byrony, but binary yes or no it can be y yes enough that i at least am willing to go with it um and just very quickly on the artificial intelligence thing i really encourage everyone to read nick bostrom who writes a lot about this stuff having read his book i am really worried about it and genuinely think we might be in for a pretty dicey time. I don't know if anyone saw, but um, they have just taught an artificial intelligence to beat a Go master for the first time, which for a long time people said, oh, we can teach them to be better than any human being at chess, but they'll never be better than us at Go. And I, again, I think that's short-sighted. Like, the years go by, they get better and better, and we stay the same. Yes. But as someone else said, the, the, that Go go. 
uh, master, uh, can't do anything else. Well, that's what I was <laughs> going to say. He's very, it, it is very good at doing yeah. Go, but that's it. As, as soon as you put it elsewhere, we'll not be able to do much. Yeah, but then just combine it with something that can do all the other things. Again, that's, that's not like a <laughs> safety wall. Like, all they have to do is end up on the same hard drive. <laughs> I quite like that idea, in fact. All we need to do is to end up with the same hard drive. Uh, okay, there, is, there was a question here in the middle, quite, and then... Yes. I'm trying to be as fair as possible, but there are so many hands up. And I'll, I'm taking. Yeah, hi. I guess one of our, you call it hardcore common sense notions of consciousness is that we have free will. Now, if you could design a, a machine uh, that convincingly passes the Turing test, would it have free will? And as Professor Humphrey said, we are machines. Do we have free will? Can I, can I just start by saying mm. I, think, I think the Turing test is a really rubbish way of evaluating. Mm. Um, well, it's certainly not a good, a good way to evaluate consciousness. It's, a, it's an okay way to evaluate a form of machine intelligence. But, sorry, the Turing test, for anyone who doesn't know, um, it was based on a Victorian parlour game, and it was hypothesised by Alan Turing um, before we have the computers that we have today, that if a machine can convince a human judge that it is not a machine, that it is human, then it is said to have passed the Turing test. There was some... Um, a bit of a fuss in the news last year where um, it was claimed that a computer had passed the Turing test, but actually looking into it a bit further, it had passed it if you could, if it was, what happened was it convinced the judges that it was a 13-year-old non-native English speaker, um, <laughs> which, you know, it's not quite the same as getting a really intelligent machine. So I think, I don't think the Turing test is a, I, I mean, I, I get that it's not quite what your question is, but I don't think it's a good measure of, of consciousness. Um, but I'll let um, Nick talk about well, that. Well, I'm, I'm not, don't, we can't obviously go into this at length, but I think you're wrong about that. I, I think Turing test is just the right test there. If, if a machine thinks it has consciousness and acts as if it has, so it has free will, and acts as if it has free will, believes in its free will and punishes uh, others for... Uh, using their free will in ways which um, it, 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 it doesn't approve of and so on, that would be quite sufficient, I think, for to say that it had free will because there's exactly the criteria which, which, which count for us. But do you think... So I just want to find out what the Turing test objection is because I feel it doesn't... It can, it can convince someone, but it's not actually an indicator of, of um, intelligence. Well, if you, well, I mean... Uh, in a sense, if, if, if you can interrogate it in the right way, just as if I can interrogate you, Kate, and I'm convinced by you that you believe you have free will, ha, that's, you. Uh, that's, 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 that's enough. That's what free will is. I mean, free will isn't anything more than, uh, than, than a, a, a description of a state we would like to be true of us. <clears throat> nobody, nobody believes there's real free will. <laughs> I mean, no, no machine person does anyway. Okay, I'll take a question that side now. Yes. Thank you. So I wanted to challenge the claim that you seem, perhaps I've heard wrong, tell me if I did, uh, to have made earlier about, um, well, just expanding perhaps our idea of what consciousness could be. And I get the feeling that 
because we are a bit ambiguous in the way that we try to define it, then we say, well, we don't really know what it is, so it could be anything. And I experienced that a lot as a physics teacher because people say, well, what do you know about the universe? 70% of the world is made out of dark matter. We don't even know that, what that is, so maybe spirits exist. But I feel like the, the claim from ignorance come, comes from the same place. Is it not true that we know enough to say that a, we can at the very least say that a rock probably does not have consciousness, for instance? Um, I'm not sure what my question is there, but I just wanted to <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to challenge that claim and, and perhaps get a bit more of your thoughts. Can we say that a claim you know how much do we know about consciousness, and can we say that a rock, for example, definitely does not have consciousness yes <laughs> what, 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 what would make you want to say it had well I actually don't think we definitely can <laughs> okay <laughs> well so as you must know um David Chalmers believes that consciousness um, is something that uh, kind of sparkles on top of information, as uh, that when information is, as it were, processed by physical systems in the universe, then psychophysical laws give rise to phenomenal consciousness. Which means that, and Chalmers doesn't necessarily say this, but he doesn't rule it out either, which means that any system in which cause and effect is processing information could have some sort of incoherent, non-linear, fragmented, but nevertheless real form of consciousness. And given that even in a rock, there are all kind of, kinds of very complex thermodynamic interactions happening all the time at the level of, it, of its atoms, we don't know that there isn't some kind of very hazy dream state. Of course, nothing... Well, no, I mean, Reed Charles, I actually find it... He, he also thinks that a thermostat might be conscious. If something can have a number, then uh, that number is information, and the information might be enough to give rise to consciousness. It doesn't mean self-awareness or sentience or a self or anything perhaps of value, but we... I think nothing is agreed upon and you won't even necessarily find four people who are all going to agree that a rock doesn't have consciousness, let alone any, any other of these premises that we might want to put forward. I, I, love, I like the idea of like, making a little android rock and just having the android rocks dream of electric rocks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think, I think David Thomas has just been childish, honestly. I mean, philosophically childish. What we have to deal with is the phenomena of consciousness as we humans experience it, and ask what that is and how did it come into being. Postulating panpsychism and you know, saying we're just, you know, just a few orders of magnitude better than the rock doesn't go anywhere near explaining how it arises in us, what happens when we go to sleep and it vanishes, why it comes back, for example. Why would you know, our brains integrating information like anything when we're asleep, and yet we're not conscious then? Consciousness is a very specific state um, in which, uh, which we can... You know, and I try and argue both mechanically how it comes into being and why it came into being because of the purpose it served for us. Consciousness in a rock would serve no, no purpose at all. But perhaps as an exercise or an adventure of thinking or an exercise of consciousness itself, could we not try to think of how it could be present in other things, in objects, in a rock, or... 
Could yeah, we not? How could we, get... we can think about the sound of one hand clapping, for example? You know, it's a good, interesting exercise, but it doesn't yes, say anything. Well, <laughs> it doesn't. Say, do you think it doesn't say anything about consciousness? I say two so, things. Firstly, uh, it's not just an exercise or an adventure. Like, it's a genuine argument that can be made. And secondly, I'd say part of the disagreement here, which is not going to be obvious to people who are not immersed in this kind of thing, is that. Nick and, for instance, David Chalmers define the word consciousness in completely different ways. They think of completely different things as existing. So inevitably, they're going to have really fundamental disagreements and one one side's position is going to look absurd to the other ones. Um, I am more inclined towards the Chalmers slide and I think it must at least, it can't be dismissed out of hand. Can you give us the definition of consciousness he uses? Uh, so for so the Enlightenment, sort of, for my Enlightenment and our Enlightenment, perhaps. I don't know if everyone knows about I it. I think Ned's wrong about Just, that. I, can, I mean, I think, you know, I, I know Charm as well. We've debated this stuff. We agree where we start. We want to understand the nature of phenomenal experience. You know, the taste of a wine or the, or the painfulness of a, of, a, of a bee sting or whatever it may be. That's the datum. That's what we want to explain. And I think he agrees about that. Hmm. Well, not to get too much into the weeds, but having read books by both of you, I thought I detected a difference. It's to do with... um, What, do we want to get into zombies? I guess we don't. Okay. I will will take another question in the meantime. (laughs) So that you can... Uh, There was a... Yes... The, the gentleman, yes, please, the man there. With, yes. Actually, away from this philosophy, I had a couple of questions for um, Kate Devlin. The uh, first one was, um, I actually live um, very close to one of the drone centres in Britain, if not Europe. Uh, you mentioned the autonomy they had, which I didn't realise. I wonder if you could just say to what extent uh, they possessed autonomy and related to it was that um, everything I've read about self-driving cars is... To, is um, it's not um, a characteristic. They come from a country with traffic lights and not roundabouts. And, for example, um, you know, when cars, four cars arrive at a mini roundabout, it's actually quite a dense and complex social interaction at which a <laughs> small car might give away to an Audi or I look at the person's face and I'm a bit frightened <laughs> of them. And, I, mean, I, I, mean, I know that in cities, obviously, they will take place, but what, 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 is it possible to reduce that complex social network of implicit rules to a set of algorithms in the way in which, you know, a, an event like this, for example, is rests, it works because there is an implicit sense of unexpressed rules. You know, basically, we will show deference to you. Yeah, I th- I so think two that, questions. I think that's why, that's why I sort of find it interesting to think the idea of the driverless car, you know, would it, would it be useful for it to, to, be, to be conscious? Um, I've... I think I've driven around the one roundabout in the whole of the United States, and it was called the Suicide Circle. Um, and uh, it was a bit, I was fine with it because you're like, yeah, roundabout, and everyone else seemed a bit hesitant. But I was in, in Chicago, I think there's, you know, there may be more than one. Um, so, yeah, I think that idea of, um, of the nuances of driving, I think that there's still work to be done on this. Um, I, I don't know how they're going to approach the roundabout thing. I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing that. Um, in terms of drones, um, so there is a, uh, there's a big campaign on, uh, the campaign against killer robots. There's also one against sex robots, but there's a whole other story. Um, the campaign against killer robots is, um, exists to um, 
set in place ethics and constraints on the development of machines that can make kill decisions. Um, with the drones, it's, it's kind of looking at things like does being removed, the operator being removed from battle um, make people less ethical? Um, are there is, when you're presenting sort of drones with targets where they're sort of using computer vision to determine what should or shouldn't be targeted and all that, we're still, we're still in control overall of, of the um, equipment, but it is able to evaluate situations on its own and make decisions based on that. So I think that is the area we're getting sort of worried about, um, what happens if, that is, if they're given more and more autonomy to make those decisions. Interesting enough, though, it's goes quite a, the evidence is rather against what you might have guessed, that these computer drone operators become intensely involved and, and anxious about the decisions they're making. Perhaps not surprisingly, because they've usually been following the target uh, in his family, in his car, going to school with his kids or whatever it may be, looking for the point at which to kill him. And they actually, I mean, there's a certain lot, uh, sort of zombie agents just pressing a button. <clears throat> no. There was right at the back, so let's go a bit Yes, there was a woman there, yes. Thank you. Um, well, my question, like uh, a layperson, is, is emotion a form of cognition? Because from what I have read in my life, uh, apparently mammals uh, developed because uh, they were able to take care of their kids that took more time to evolve and emotion was important for that um, if not they would lay their eggs like turtles and then just go and do whatever they had to do um, and also when you were mentioning um, sex and pleasure um, I thought the way to talk about it was not very social because there is the dimension how am I going to have pleasure from this sex toy or doll or whatever but then um, sex could be also a social experience where you give pleasure to others and uh, different forms of life, uh, social life, have also this element. So I would like to hear your... Yeah, absolutely, I do agree. And if you have a machine that is capable of feeling and, and being able to process that, then I, I, I think that's a really interesting approach to it in how you, how you give back to the machine. Um, <coughs> There was something else I was going to say, but I can't remember what it was. Um, but yeah, I think that is. But um, oh, I know what it was. It's been emotion. Um, sex. So sex is a very uh, sex is a very social thing. Um, it's it's comes with a raft of psychological well-beings. It's you know uh, uh, things like your mental health and all sorts of stuff. Um, and I think that's one of the things I'm interested in is how it affects our cognition because it is a, it's a motivator. It is a primary motivator as far as I'm aware. It's, it is influencing how we think. Um, and in terms of, of um, conscious, well, I suppose conscious action, but also in terms of um, hormonal reactions um, in the brain. And so I think um, that it's an incredibly important part of consciousness as well. Mm -hmm. I think I will pitch in because I think this is a tremendously important aspect and as Nick was talking, I was thinking, well, if we think about cognition mainly in psychological terms, we cannot do away without the problem of affection and emotion as uh, it's in intertwined from the very beginning. So a lot of what I find interesting in artificial intelligence work is that they understand very well that the brittleness of what 
machines can do right now has to do with the lack of sociology and the lack of uh, hot cognition, as it were, the fact that you need to understand how people feel and how people socially behave to make sense of of, uh, of the world. So I think this is a problem that yeah, and, we, we and need to... And on that, I mean, one of the most obvious things about humans is we think in words. Mm-hmm. Words are part of the human language, absolutely uh, tied up with, mm-hmm. with our relationships with other people. No artificial machines are yet thinking in words, because actually nobody would even know how to do that. But it's crucial to our way of going about things that we are using a language of thought, which in fact is shared, learned from other people mm-hmm. and shared with other people. <clears throat> There was a question. The man up there, please. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, I'm also into quite a bit of sci-fi and um, this disembodiment aspect. Uh, in the film The Matrix, there were an awful lot of disembodied people, but they had a sort of consciousness that was um, relevant to our existence today. And so what would be the relevance of uploading um, our consciousness that we experience today other than to be used as a as a slave in in the matrix movie maybe we need to advance our version of consciousness and as a stepping stone to that perhaps we can um experiment with uh you know uh, what terence mckenna talks about in um his field of work um well, there is, there is an argument to be made that um, famously going back to uh, Descartes, there's the thought experiment of is there a kind of malign imp um, who is just giving, the, giving us the illusion of being out in the world and in fact we're just kind of a mind in the imp's clutches. And the matrix is basically exactly that. There's no philosophical difference between what the matrix is positing and uh, the Cartesian imp. However, um, there is an argument that what matters in that context is not the imp, it's the imp's uh, malign attitude, as it were. So if we were in the clutches of neutral robots in the Matrix or a neutral imp who had neither um, sort of bad intentions for us nor necessarily good intentions, is that something that we should be existentially horrified by if that were the case. And um, perhaps it isn't. Perhaps uh, if we did wake up from the Matrix and it turned out we weren't slaves, we weren't sort of real in exactly the way we thought, should that make any difference to how valuable we see our lives to be um, or how much we should carry on living them, or whether indeed we even want to wake up. We already know that um, you know consciousness, whatever you think it is, is based somehow on the physical stuff of our brains. But there's very good reason to believe that the physical stuff of our brains is based on something deep down that we don't understand, whether it's the sort of mathematical universe or the holographic universe or some kind of quantum thing or strings or whatever. A a lot of scientists believe that if you follow it all the way down, there's probably something that we don't understand yet at the very base of it. So if that thing at the base of it is an imp or if it's the holographic universe, 
either way, it's not like we have full access to what we're running on, as it were. Either way, we're a program, as it were, running on hardware that we have no access to. So maybe either way, we should just shrug our shoulders. As long as the imp isn't torturing us or enslaving us, if we think the imp is just uh, letting us go, then maybe the matrix scenario isn't so bad. So in relation to the LSE, Nick Bostrom came up with this idea originally that we not only could be a simulation, but we almost inevitably are. Nick Bostrom was a graduate of, of the LSE and, and, and philosophy department, wasn't he? And he did his PhD there, PhD here. Um, and uh, one of the nice ideas is that if we were some, somebody was running us as a, as a simulation, they might be tempted, it's an impish thing to do, to spoke, put a spoke in the wheel somewhere and create a miracle. <clears throat> um, and it's been argued that, and people working in parapsychology, for example, have argued that actually you know, maybe some of the anomalies we've come across, which are inexplicable within the lo- laws of this universe as they should be, could be because we are simulation, and somebody up there is deciding just to interfere a little bit. <clears throat> I would take... It's difficult not to listen to in what you say in a very different language, but it reminds me of Freud a lot. Mm. Uh, okay. It's just a very different language, but not terribly different uh, uh, when it comes to the substance of it. There was a question, yes, right, right at the back, because we didn't have any questions from the very back. Hi. I was just actually thinking about the last, um, that last kind of question, and I'm basically a very spiritual person. I've read lots of spiritual texts, and that basically is uh, what they are saying. You know, that our consciousness is, you know, it was created by a super sort of uh, intelligent being, and that miracles and things is, is by people who have kind of been able to get back and access that higher consciousness and then start to kind of show, a bit like Neo, that, you know, the world is not actually as we think it is. There's, there's a higher dimension and things can be warped. So, and that's interesting because I've actually always had dreams of the future, like um, very kind of, uh, sort of like very short, very realistic um, dreams of places and things and people that I don't know. And then a few months later, like that little kind of snippet, maybe lasts for a few seconds, you know, I go to a new school and it's, you know, it's there that, that I dreamed about before. And that's, there's lots of other people who have uh, dreams like that um, so yeah, so I, I do believe you know that that kind of there is another dimension, and we are kind of able to kind of through spirituality is talking about a higher consciousness and, and that whole kind of interplay, getting back to what reality really is. Uh, it's not really a question, but it's just. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's a very important thing to say. I, I hate the way this discussion is going at the moment, um, but uh, because I think in the end, you know, we, we, yeah, no, we we. we, we we, our consciousness was, was designed by natural selection. It's much the best theory we have. It's one we're increasingly beginning to understand how it could work. We don't need to have these other dreams of, of, of superintelligences or gods which have done it for their own amusement. But the, the fact that we want to believe in that is actually certainly grist from my mill because I've argued that, that, that phenomenal consciousness has evolved in order to make us believe that we're not material entities, that we do have a, a, an importance over and above anything which could be generated by physics and chemistry. Um, and in the end, 
it's that which gives us a notion of a soul and a human spirit, which is behind so many of our most important achievements, um, including asking questions like you're doing, which philosophers always will do. Uh, I'll take one last question. Uh, uh, okay, right here. I'd like from, to have from over there. There. <laughs> no, <sorry>. Okay. <laughs> Hi. Uh, I would like actually to bring the topic a little bit towards the body again. And to me, one characteristic of consciousness uh, of ourselves is that actually we perceive everything through our bodies. And actually, the body is also a constraint of my consciousness. I mean, I cannot really expand my consciousness and be aware about what is feeling the other person in the other part of the room because I'm here, this is my container. So when you are talking about uploading or downloading or having your consciousness in the cloud, I cannot really imagine being in the cloud with some sort of avatar of my own body. And I think that that actually is a key aspect of the importance of the body to actually push towards our cognition. That the body is always there. So <clears throat> I don't know how to rephrase this, but um, can we actually free our consciousness without the image of a body, even if it's in the cloud, for instance? Or oh, the body is always something that is going to be there. Can we even make some computations? Imagine that we put our mind in another kind of software or whatever. Can we, can we actually, our brain, make some computations without having the experience of a limiter, of a, con, of a container, like, for instance, the one that we have in our body? I don't know if... Can I... I I'm kind of avoiding answering the second part of that, but um, <laughs> the first part about not knowing here, where you're sitting at the bottom, not knowing what's going on at the back of the room. Um, I think that's really interesting because there are people where I've wor worked on some sensory motor stuff, um, theory stuff, where we look at sensory augmentation and sensory substitution. And you can, there is a thing, um, the idea of extended cognition where you can rely on external props um, for your consciousness. So, for example, even something as simple as a notebook that you write down things in and you use in place of your memory to store information. Um, our mobile phones that we use every day become a sort of a key part in how we think. Um, and sensory, sensory augmentation can give us extra senses that we didn't have before. Um, we're not limited to just these five senses that everyone thinks. We do have other forms of sentence, sen um, senses as well. And we can keep adding to these and we can keep building in ways. Um, we can add signals um, that get sent to our brain via touch. We can have extra... Um, sort of audible signals that generate new feelings in us. And I think that's a, a really interesting thing because we are that way expanding consciousness um, through physical means to augment our senses. Well, just quickly, that was the question at the end of Sandra's introduction. I mean, can we, can we disembody consciousness? I don't think we can disembody consciousness. Like we can certainly disembody cognition. And they are separate questions. <clears throat> now, do you want to make a... I mean, I think the should uploading, copying ourselves to the cloud ever turn out to be possible. I think the first generation certainly will have to simulate a container, will have to simulate a body. Maybe the generation they create will as well. But given that by that time... Because it's all happening on a computer, perhaps thousands of generations will pass in a matter of milliseconds... Before we know it, our distant, distant descendants will view the question 
I can't imagine myself without a body. How could that happen? They will see it like I can't imagine going up in a hot air balloon, I think. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Uh, well, be it as it may, for the time being, the body exists and insists, and a glass of wine awaits the body <laughs> outside. So I'm going to thank our speakers for this very uh, intriguing and exciting discussion, and you for your questions, and invite you all to join us for a glass of wine and for a uh, co general conversation. Thank you.